and gentlemen. Uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is me talking to you. Hey, so this just reminds me. Should do, you, do people like the greetings, dear listeners thing? Or are you used to it? Is it like a comfortable old shoe or does it sound stupid? Because I sometimes can't decide what I think about it. It began as a sort of play on the dear reader thing from the G file, and I got stuck with it. And I'm just kind of clueless about whether or not I should stick with it. But anyway, be that as it may. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, come on by the Dispatch to find um, all sorts of things. Uh, today's episode is sponsored by our friends at ExpressVPN. More about them in a little bit. So, uh, where to begin? Um, it has been an incredibly vexatious and long week for me. There has, um, been a lot of family drama with the college application stuff with my daughter, um, which is no fun. And then some other stuff, which I probably shouldn't share with you. And, um, and then all sorts of crazy work things have preyed upon my mental bandwidth. So if, um, I just start talking about how I smell burnt hair, um, or how, you know, the annual rainfall in Brazil is a duck, it's because I am finally coming unwound. Uh, today's G file was a bit of a stem winder. I suspect some people won't find the second half all that interesting, but it's uh, my newsletter. So when I'm putting air quotes around news, so I did what I wanted to do. Um, I won't rehash the whole thing, but basically um, after some brief stuff about Joe Biden and his performance in the um, town hall thing, I talked about empathy and um some longtime readers of mine will know that I actually have, I have a lot of takes on empathy. Um, I'm a big fan of this book by Paul Bloom, the Yale psychologist called Against Empathy. And it really, you know, it, I learned a lot of things from it. It didn't quite change my mind, but it crystallized my thinking about a bunch of stuff. And part of the point I wanted to make in the G file today, because it's, it was such a running theme of the Amy Coney Barrett hearings is that empathy is a very dangerous concept to drag into places it doesn't belong. Um, Bloom makes the case against empathy in a really total way. You know, he, he points out that, you know, um, empathy tends to trigger parts of your brain that leave you not thinking entirely rationally. Um, you know, that part of your brain that says we should drop every single thing and save the little girl who falls down the well. I think that's a good part of human nature and we shouldn't just throw it out. But when you take that on a sort of more global or national scale about how you form public policy, um, you don't, you end up making emotional decisions where rational decisions would improve more people's lives. I am by no means a strict utilitarian. But, um, you know, one example of this, you know, which I've talked about a bunch of times is when people say, if it saves just one life, it's worth it. Uh, 
this is ludicrous. Joe Biden has said it a million times, but basically I think almost every single politician has said it on the public policy issue that they want to score points on. Um, and the problem with it is that no sane society would organize all of its activity around that principle. If, if you truly believed any government action that saved a single life was worth it, uh, you know, the speed limit would be five miles an hour. Um, we'd all have to walk around wearing helmets. Um, you know, you just, it, it doesn't make sense. And this gets sort of the, the core sort of conservative Sowellian point that politics and policy are about trade-offs. They're about choosing between competing goods. Um, I always tell my daughter that there are only two kinds of hard decisions in life. Um, choices between really good options and choices between really bad options. It's very easy to make a choice between a good option and a bad option. You know, no one agonizes about whether they should take the million dollars or the um, amateur colonoscopy, right? I mean, we know which one you'd prefer, but uh, it's only when we are choosing between two good things or two bad things that we really have to employ our reasoning abilities. And, um, and empathy is one of those things that can really throw off our reasoning. Now, again, I, I will defend it in some circumstances. You know, one of the points, you know, it's, uh, Bloom has this line where he says, when people hear empathy, when most people hear empathy, they think of kindness. I think of war. And he's got a very good point. And as I point out in the Jew file, you know, there are an enormous number of wars that were started by the manipulation of empathy. Uh, you know, when Hitler talked about the plight of the Sudeten Germans, he was trying to arouse empathy to, uh, garner public support for taking over the Sudetenland. When, uh, historically Middle Eastern leaders talked about the plight of the Palestinians, they're playing the same game, um, in a lot of respects as Hitler was playing with his Sudeten Germans. Now, a lot of those Arab leaders and, and, and Persian leaders and Turkish leaders, um, were not enormous fans of, they were not particularly concerned with actually helping Palestinians. Uh, many of those same governments have kept Palestinians in, in essentially giant prison camps uh, for generations now because they would rather have them as a prop or a cudgel. They didn't want to let them become citizens of their own countries. And they wanted to use them as a way to arouse anger at uh, Israel, um, which gets to the point that, that empathy brings with it a natural human response of antipathy, which is the, you know, the antonym of, of empathy. Uh, one example using the G file is like when everybody went, remember the, when everyone lost their minds about the Covington high school kids, um, on the mall, all the sort of right-wing culture warriors immediately felt empathy for these kids. You know, it, it tapped straight into that, the, the sort of deep strain of victimhood that runs through big chunks of the right. And, um, and I want to be clear, I'm not dismissing the victim. I've been arguing for 20 years now that, you know, the, the cultural left have been the aggressors in the culture war. Um, and it's only when conservatives stand up to the aggression that all of a sudden people start saying, oh, look, you right wingers, you always want to impose your values on us. When in reality, most of the time it's been the, the left that has been trying to impose its values on the right. And when the right fights back, they all of a sudden switch gears and say, oh, you, you right wingers are trying to impose your views on us. 
Um, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to just simply say that the victimhood thing is unwarranted or, um, wholly illegitimate, but man, does it go too far sometimes? And man, do people wallow it, wallow in it on the right, um, particularly these days. But the whole, the flip side of all that empathy for the Covington kids was it gave people, you know, this righteous feeling of antipathy towards the, the mainstream media, towards the people who were giving those kids a hard time. It was, it was, you know, you know, this classic invocation of that part of your brain that says my kin or my tribe is being attacked by the enemy. And therefore I must rush, you know, rush to the banners of my kin. And that's how empathy works a lot in human history. That's how it works in our brains. And, uh, and it's how it often distorts policy. And so when we saw like the Democrats in the Judiciary Committee with their constant invocations of all of these legitimately terrible stories, you know, I, my heart goes out to all the people, you know, assuming all the accounts were correct and accurate, my heart goes out to people who, you know, have had medical crises or whose kids were shot. I mean, that's all terrible stuff. But it was this constant invocation of feelings, of, of trying to get people to feel empathetic towards these, these unfortunate cases that, Pippa, what are you doing? Pippa, go, go, go. That, um, sorry, the Spaniel got a bath this afternoon and she's in a pushy mood. Um, where was I? Oh, so all these, you know, all of these terrible stories, you know, literally poster children for um, the downsides of our healthcare system and the, the insinuation and sometimes just the outright statement was that if you interpret the law in ways that, um, won't help these people, then you are in favor of their plight that you, that you don't empathize with them. And what the Democrats were, were doing was simply playing on people's emotions, um, rather than making legal arguments, you know, when Maisie Hirono, who, um, has got to be one of the dumbest politicians um, I've ever heard. And that's, you know, it's not gendered or racial in any way because, um, you know, look, I think, <laughs> I think Amy Klobuchar did a very good job in those hearings. Um, but man, she, but Hirono, you know, the advantage of Hirono is that she doesn't have the skill that, say, Cory Booker does to at least couch her naked appeals to argument from emotion um, and any kind of artful rhetoric or legal reasoning. But when these people, you know, trotted out all these stories, they were basically trying to say that um, any reading of the law, regardless of what the law actually says or what the Constitution actually says, that doesn't come to these people's aid is inherently illegitimate. And it was the use and abuse of empathy in that. And one of the things that bothers me about the way uh, we've been selling, as I've mentioned on a couple of podcasts this week, the way we've been selling, um, or I should say conservatives have been selling, um, or Republicans have been selling um, Amy Coney Barrett, is, is they've tried to play the empathy card too. You know, she's a working mom. She's a conservative, religious, you know, feminist hero, um, all of these things. She knows your struggles, yada, yada, yada. All those things may in fact be true, but 
they have nothing to do with whether or not um, she would be a good Supreme Court justice. They have everything to do with playing the same game that the left plays, you know, and, and, and Barack Obama was explicit about this. He said that empathy for the downtrodden, for the oppressed, for the left out, for the left behind was the key, one of the key, key factor that he considered in finding um, and picking Supreme Court justices. And the problem with this approach is that it's literally at odds with um, the whole idea of justice being blind, literally at odds with the actual oath that Supreme Court justices take. You know, the, the, the whole idea of the rule of law, the whole idea of um, equality before the law is like the idea of the equality before God is that it shouldn't matter if you are poor or black or female or gay or transgendered or one-legged or any of these kinds of things. If, if, if the law is on your side, it's on your side. Conversely, if you're rich and white and abled and male and whatever, and the law is on your side, the law is on your side. We don't live, we're not supposed to have a system that says the law works differently for different kinds of people. That is at the heart of the very idea of sort of, uh, you know, liberal democratic capitalism is that the rules are supposed to be fair and equal for everybody. And, um, and I'm not saying that they always are. There are all sorts of factors that can uh, rig the system at one level or another. I'm totally open to that point because I think it's true. Um, you know, the guild mentality, uh, public choice theory, all of these things point to countless examples of where people try to uh, rig the system for their own interests. And that's part of human nature. And it's part of human nature in capitalist systems. It's part of human nature in socialist systems. It's part of human nature in every system that you can conceive of. Um, you know, this is one of my great peeves about when people say, oh, one of the terrible things about capitalism is that people are greedy or blah, 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 blah. And I always, you know, like, what system do you know of where there aren't greedy people? You know, what system do you know of where um, people won't help? <clears throat> Something I talked about a bit with, with Will Salatan at the beginning of the week. Um, you know, there are problems, human, as I wrote in Suicide at West, it is natural for human beings to try to featherbed, to help friends, family, kin, to uh, change the rules for their own benefit. As I that quote, I always quote from uh, from Adam Smith about how rarely will two people in the same line of work meet in a tavern or public accommodation where they don't quick, where the conversation doesn't uh, quickly turn to a conspiracy against the public good. You know, if you have if there are only two lamp stores in your town and you meet the other lamp store owner, odds are you don't want to compete. What you want to do is agree to raise prices on lamps across the board so you both benefit. And, um, and capitalism is supposed to, the, the way our system is supposed to work is it's supposed to uh, uh, try to stop that kind of thing or at least encourage innovation and entrepreneurs um, in com competition to make sure that that thing doesn't last. 
Uh, the problem is, is when the government gets into the situation where they legitimize that kind of thing through licensure, through traders, you know, through um, what the, they did under the New Deal, under associations and all of these kinds of things. And I realize just now that I have wandered off into a major cul-de-sac. But you get my point is, is the way the system is supposed to work, that when you go into a courtroom, you are not supposed to have a feeling that, oh, because the judge is, uh, has the same skin color as me, that uh, I'm going to get a better deal or I'm going to get the, the, he's going to put his thumb on the scales of justice. Likewise, you're not supposed to think, oh, just because I'm poor or because I'm rich. It's supposed to be what the law says. And the, the way that we talk about the role of Supreme Court justices is, you know, it's perfectly fitting for a monarchy. You know, if, if, if we were having an elective, um, elective monarchy, we would really want to know about whether or not the king or queen who's going to take the throne feels my pain, sympathizes with people like me, yada, yada, yada. But that's not how judges are supposed to work. And I, this is why I get so frustrated with people who make fun of originalism. And I wrote my syndicated column about this this week. Um, People talk about originalism as if it's this bizarre, hokey, weird, antediluvian idea. Um, don't they, you know, don't people understand that the founding fathers didn't know about jet planes or the internet and all of these kinds of things? And it's not just that they say these things with such supreme contempt. Um, it's that every time this argument comes up, they think they're being really clever about this as if People who support textualism or originalism or, you know, original understand, whatever, whatever the different schools of the text matters, um, they've heard these arguments. They have answers to these arguments. We have answers to these arguments. What I never really have ever found, and I've looked pretty hard, is a coherent argument about the other way that they say we should be doing this, right? This idea of the living constitution where we breathe new meaning into the Constitution every generation, you know, as Al Gore and a dozen other people have said. And uh, I've never seen a sort of a rational, clear, non-obfuscatory, non, you know, sort of sleight of hand, light show kind of argument in favor of rejecting originalism in total in favor of some sort of living constitution thing that didn't at the, at the end of it basically just mean we should have judges who do the right thing as I define it. And, um, you know, you often hear criticisms of originalism saying that judges use originalism to reach the conclusions that they wanted to find anyway. And I'm sure that is sometimes true, but, at least that's a deviation from the principle of originalism. It's a, you know, it's, it's the, it's the tribute of corruption that corruption pays to principle. Because if an originalist judge is saying, oh, well, you know, the founding fathers happened, you know, I, I, if, if, if an originalist judge says that the right to bear arms includes bazookas and F-16s, um, because he wants a bazooka and an F-16, um, he's wrong and he's doing, and he's lying about using, you know, originalism to get himself to that position. 
Um, but that that hypocrisy, right, is at least acknowledging that there is a principled right way of doing things. What what is the principle that you can be hypocritical about if you believe that at the end of the day you can consult polls and your own feelings and the sweet in your own definition of the sweet mystery of life and just decide what the constitution says to affirm something that you want to be if if you can't state what the principle is um i'm not doing a very good job of sort of explaining this but if if at the end of the day it's just your feelings then you don't have a principle other than other than your own arrogance and um whenever i read people who criticize uh, you know in 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 bombastic terms originalism i can never get from them a serious argument about what principle they are advocating um because if you because at the end of the day all they're doing is uh saying that the constitution is a rorschach test for social justice um so anyway that's what i got into when i got into some german historicism and whatnot I pointed out those one of the things I'm sort of fascinated by is that the word empathy, um, and I don't have it written in front of me, but comes from this German word, Einfühlung. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it, um, which was a concept that was developed by the this German historicist, nationalist guy in the early part of the 1800s, Johann Herder. And, um, and the idea was that you're supposed to, that, uh, that Einfühlung, which got translated into the English language in 1908 as empathy. We didn't have a word, we didn't have the word in English empathy until 1908. Um, but this idea of it, it, this Einfühlung or whatever it's called was this concept of how you have, it literally translates into feeling your way into something. And what Herder was arguing, which I think is entirely defensible for a certain kind of intellectual inquiry for the, for a historian or a student of a culture, what he was saying is you have to sort of understand what was in what's in the heads of people who live in the reality on the ground, right? It's very easy for us to judge alien cultures when we don't really understand how their lives work, what, what more is what, you know, customs what assumptions are built into daily life and you have to sort of and so the empathetic approach that herder was talking about was basically you have to put yourself in their shoes and walk around a bit to really understand where cultures are coming from and i think that's perfectly legitimate point um the problem is is where you take that too far and say that essentially um each culture is so unique and so distinct that it can that no universal rules can apply to it and that was part of what herder's nationalism was all about right the the original german nationalists uh johann fick johann herder obviously some others um what they were trying to do was say that the germanic people were the only organically unspoiled people um left in europe they hadn't been tainted by uh the latinization that came from the roman empire there was still 
real and the German language was still this organic hot mess of, of compound words that, that weren't part of the Romance languages. And um, it wasn't biological racism or anything like that, but the, the categorical imperatives within his argument were very conducive to the biological racism that came later. And um, it got to the point where the German historical school, which is a source of great, great mischief in Western civilization over the last 300 years, um, uh, basically took this argument. They, they, when the time came, they shoved some Hegel and some Darwin into it. And they basically made these arguments about how different peoples evolved differently and were like different species. And then you get scientific racism, which comes later, which makes it even worse. And, um, fun fact for hardcore egghead, uh, trivia buffs is that the whole reason we talk of an Austrian school, which is like Friedrich Hayek and Ludwig von Mises. And, um, and then there's arguments about who some of the other Austrians were, Ernst, uh, uh, Gottfried Habler or, um, Joseph Schumpeter or whatever. We can have that argument another time. The last thing I need to do is shove a stick into the hornet's nest of Austrian school purists. Um, but the reason the name Austrian school was created, it was a pejorative, um, much like capitalism was born as a pejorative, which is a Marxist term or neoconservatives, neoconservatives was born as a pejorative. Um, it was a, it was a crappy insinuation that the liberals who had moved right were really like neo-Nazis. That was the linkage that people like Harrington and others were trying to find. The Austrian school was named as a, it, derisively as distinct from the German historical school, because what the, the Austrians were arguing was that, no, 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 there are universal rules. There are these, that, that economies are best run by clear, simple, neutral rules that are born of the sort of the classical liberalism of the, of the French and English and Scottish and, and American enlightenment. Um, and that these rules should apply across borders and that they are universal. And I mean, they weren't, they didn't get into the whole, I don't believe natural rights and God-given rights and the idea and all, and all of that. But, um, they, they didn't believe they, they, the Austrians set themselves apart in part because they were so cosmopolitan and Vienna back then was kind of awesome. Um, they set themselves apart from this very contextual uh view of the german historicists which was that you know uh, body politics that societies nations whatever evolve in this darwinian hegelian manner and that their rules can be subjective and bent to the specific cultures of a specific place and things like free markets and democracy and the rule of law and individual rights um, these things were foreign impositions. And that argument got started with people like Herder, who believed that the French Enlightenment was this, uh, and he had some reason to believe this because it kind of was, was this invading force, right? You remember the French revolutionary armies go into um, Germany, first as the French revolutionary armies, and then they just basically, uh, I don't know, they switched uniforms or tore off their insignia and replaced it with the Napoleonic armies. But still, what, the, what, what both did was impose rules um, on these 
little German mini states that felt foreign and alien. It was like imposing, it's like very similar to the arguments we got um, under George W. Bush about how it was impossible to impose democracy on the Middle East because Arab culture just simply wasn't conducive to Western style democracy. The German, the German nationalists thought that, you know, French enlightenment ideas were not uh, applicable to the authentic Teutonic way of living and all of that. And the reason why I got into this is, oh, because this whole, I, this whole argument from empathy uh, really kind of comes from that. And it needs to be understood as at least in a some slight way as part of the anti-enlightenment project. Because what it is sailing, saying um, is that your feelings are more important than the rule of law, that your empathy for the downtrodden is, is, um, should trump neutral rules in a free society. And, uh, and that project, which again, I read about at great length, um, is the central project of those, whether on the right or the left, um, of people who want to, uh, claim that we took a wrong turn, um, in the fork in the road that, uh, when the enlightenment came along and, uh, it takes different forms at different times. And, uh, and I think that, that it's something that people should at least noodle a little bit. Okay. But I'm, I promise I'm done. Uh, what else? So this morning, um, after I got back from perambulating the canines, I, uh, turned on morning Joe which I find less rewarding than I used to. Um, I used to like watching Morning Joe more when uh, Scarborough was um, more willing to stand up for conservative positions, even though you know, he was speaking to an MSNBC audience. And I, and I, I generally kind of like Scarborough. I got my disagreements, obviously, with him. But... Um, um, but what I liked about the original Morning Joe pre-Trump was that it was so top-heavy with truly conventional wisdom besotted liberals um, that because Scarborough was willing to have the occasional conservative on and because he was occasionally willing to take the conservative position, you kind of got this antibody response that actually gave you a better sense of what the conventional wisdom among liberals was it, than you would if they were just all speaking freely without any pushback, you know, because you could see what would actually make uh, Eugene Robinson and those kinds of people um, angry or dissent or say, oh, that's a good point. And it was a, it was a nice way of sort of um, gleaning where the inside the beltway uh, center of gravity was. And you don't get that anymore because Trump has distorted everything and it has become, you know, just so relentlessly anti-Trump, um, full of anti-Trump diatribes and whatnot that it becomes anyway, less useful. But this morning it was pretty interesting. They had, uh, Rod Dreher, old friend of mine. We've had our disagreements, but I like the guy and I can still consider him a friend who's got a new book out, Live Not By Lies. Um, I haven't read it, you know, um, it's probably not my cup of tea, even though I'll probably agree with some of it, uh, just because I'm not looking for 
uh, ways I could live to be live as a better Christian. Um, but he makes an argument very familiar to me um, about the um, the sort of what he calls what he calls soft totalitarianism of progressivism today. And anyone who read my first book would understand why I think it's a um, a familiar argument to me. And what happened was they had David French on, and um, and and Eddie Gloud, who's this professor at Princeton, um, who's a true sort of, I mean, he's a very nice guy. I've met him. Um, and I think he's very smart on the things he knows a lot about, but otherwise he is a good example of someone who does a lot of, uh, playback of sort of liberal conventional wisdom boilerplate. Um, but, uh, Glau got very testy about it. And then Rod kind of lost his cool for a little bit. And they got in this big fight because what Gloud was saying was that he doesn't know what Dreher is talking about. And he kept mispronouncing Rod's name, which I thought was bad form. Someone should at least have said something in his ear, but I uh, kept calling him Dreher. Um, and he basically played a sort of a Dan Rather-esque card, which is just to say everything conservatives are saying is just a myth and made up and he doesn't know what he's talking about. He doesn't know who these progressive, you know, uh, thought police people are. He doesn't know what they're, he's, what Rod's talking about at universities and blah, 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 blah. And, um, and the real crime is Donald Trump's authoritarianism, yada, yada, yada. And, um, where I think Rod made a big mistake is he, um, because I, I think Glaude got under his skin. He used an example from Princeton University as proof of this soft totalitarianism. And it was some, I don't remember the guy's name. It's a familiar kind of story for anybody who follows this kind of stuff of, um, of some professor who wrote something that was not politically correct. I don't know what it was. He got in a lot of trouble for it, um, and uh, and it turned into this in the weeds argument about the specific case that I couldn't quite follow. Um, when I think Rod would have been much better suited to, because part of so part of his argument is, I gather that um, the real forces of cultural power out there aren't government. They're, you know, the commanding heights of the culture, as, as Lenin would put it, universities, Hollywood, uh, the mainstream media, um, uh, you know, uh, the, the, all of the sort of helping professions, uh, the social workers, you know, basically the new class that I've been writing about for years that, you know, the Schumpeterian new class, the guys who control the 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 main narratives of our lives um um, or at least that's the claim and uh and i think i have a lot of sympathy for rod's argument and what he i think the argument he should have used is just to say you know look just two days ago um in real time and i wrote my wednesday g file about this in real time we saw this coordinated um effort to paint amy coney barrett as a bigot because she had used the phrase sexual preference which 
you know, I understand that, that, that a lot of sort of serious gay activist groups and other, you know, uh, kindred groups have been arguing for a while that sexual preference needs to go as a phrase. And I, I, I am not going to spill one drop of metaphorical blood to fighting to defend the term sexual preference. I would just simply note that it was a term that people came up with as a polite euphemism for homosexuality or whatever. I assume just homosexuality. And it was used and has been used um, frequently by, by all manner of Democrats, uh, including Joe Biden. It was used by the New York Times. It's been used by the Washington Post. It was, it's, it's, I believe, still codified in all sorts of laws. <laughs> um, and just because she said that, she used the phrase sexual preference, we saw in real time the entire sort of woke idea manufacturing industry spring into overdrive and claim that this was proof that um, Coney Barrett wants to make gay people second-class citizens, even though the very sentence that she had offered about using the term sexual preference was how she would never discriminate based on sexual preference. So if sexual preference in her mind is a euphemism or is a synonym for homosexual or transgendered or whatever, um, we're supposed to completely ignore the text of what she said, which is that she doesn't believe in any discrimination against these people, and instead believe the subtext of what they imposed on it, and that sexual preference was really a dog whistle to say that she doesn't believe that um, that gay people are full citizens in our country and that they need to be sent back to the closet, which is almost literally what one writer at Slate wrote. And I, it's all nonsense. And then, so the, the best example for Rod's case is that Webster's Dictionary, by the end of the day, changed its definition of the word, of the phrase sexual preference to say it was offensive, all based on taking its cue from this argument and, or this attempt to smear her. And that's a lot of, that, that really gets to the heart of what Rod's talking about. It's what I talked about in my first book about um, what the Germans called Gleich, Gleichschaltung, um, which is a word that comes from electrical engineering and it means coordination. And um, in some ways it's very similar to what H.G. Wells was talking about when he used the phrase open conspiracy. And the idea is that you don't need orders from on high or from some central command or HQ to tell you, okay, these words are now on PC and those were, and these are the new acceptable words. Rather, everyone is paying attention, waiting to take their cues from other members of the open conspiracy, um, to sort of form, uh, you know, uh, virtual mobs essentially, and to coordinate. And under the Gleichschaltung concept, um, you didn't, you know, the Nazis did not need to uh, take over every institution in the country. They just required that every institution be led by people who are philosophically aligned with the Nazi revolution or the Nazi cause. And otherwise, they could remain um, nominally independent. And again, I'm not calling anybody a Nazi here, but this concept of sort of open conspiracy or coordination, which Rod was, was trying to get at, I think people much more understand the dictionary rewriting in real time um, as an example of that kind of thing 
than some faculty battle at Princeton, particularly when Princeton is probably among the lower, on the lower end of the list of offending universities about this kind of stuff to begin with. I mean, Robbie George is there. He does great work. There are some great people there and all that. Um, but I think this, this is a real thing in our culture that, um, you know, all institutions sort of have to be aligned and every now and then you get these, um, moments of hysteria is probably too, um, pejorative in some cases, but, uh, these moments of heightened awareness, let's say to some things and where all of a sudden everyone must profess their fealty to the cause. And, you know, in the wake of the George Floyd killing, which again was terrible, um, we saw that unfold in real time where epidemiologists had been saying for months, don't get into large groups, wear masks. Um, it is morally irresponsible and dangerous uh, to, you know, have mass rallies or any of these kinds of things. And then because racism and anti-racism was so important that, you know, not all of them, but a lot of them basically said, okay, well, this is the one great exception, right? As if like even COVID is on board with the fight against racism. So therefore, um, they get a pass, BLM protesters or whatever, get a pass for these exhortations that we've been, um, offering. And then once the protests kind of died down, they went back to making that argument about Trump rallies and all of that. And, um, uh, that kind of, you know, my favorite example during all that was when the National Poetry Foundation, which has this huge endowment and it's all about poetry, um, they, they issued some statement where showing 100% solidarity with Black Lives Matter and all that, um, but that apparently wasn't enough. And members of this poetry guild um, essentially demanded the resignations of the leadership of the Poetry Foundation and demanded that the endowment be redistributed away from poetry and towards uh, some version of Black Lives Matter social justice kind of thing. And, you know, this is one of my great peeves about why our society has so much trouble is that the idea that you can't just stay in your lane that you can't just be responsible for the things your institution is supposed to do and do those things well with an amount of, with a certain amount of loyalty to the needs of your institution and not some larger, greater cause that has been is steadily being eroded under this, this kind of Gleichaltung thing, this, this idea that all the oars have to be pulling in the same direction that, um, it doesn't matter if you're the, head of a bowling league the bowling league now too has to commit itself to anti-racism and not bowling right this is this new uh you know this resurgence in this argument that um uh ceos of publicly held corporations need to have a essentially a social justice mission that puts uh returning value to shareholders second to the greater good and, um, look, I have no problem with corporations doing nice things and, and, or good things. And that, you know, some of these are prudential questions at the margins and you don't have to be, um, a complete zealot about it. At the same time, you know, when 
you say that corporations should care about more than returning profits or shareholder value or whatever the right term is, um, but that should care more about uh, some social justice considerations. You're basically saying that the CEOs or the leadership, corporate leadership of these companies should be spending other people's money on um, stuff that other people care about that does not um, that, that 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 does not help the bottom line of the company, and I just I think that's sort of morally irresponsible and 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 kind of vi- a violation of a fundamental contract. You know, if I invest in a a hamburger chain and the head of the hamburger chain says, thank you very much for your investment. We are now going to spend this money on homeless shelters. I'd be pissed, right? I mean, the whole point was that you're supposed to return, you know, my, on my investment, but we've lost sight of that. And we think that every institution should be bent to the cause of social justice. And so that's why I've been saying, you know, for years about this sort of soft totalitarianism thing that the, you know, the most fascistic thing you can say um, that is said regularly on a college campus um, and in, you know, elite progressive circles is if you're not part of the problem, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem, which is truly a totalitarian concept. And I guess I should pause for a second to, to do a little thing. I hadn't really planned on this, but we get the word totalitarian. The person who coined the word totalitarian was Benito Mussolini, um, who, among his many, many different definitions of fascism, because he kept making crap up on the fly, but one of his most famous definitions was everything within the state, nothing outside the state. Now, it's important to keep in mind that that wasn't as scary sounding as it sounds today. I mean, now it sounds like something straight out of 1984. But what he meant by that was that we're all in it together, right? We're all on the same page. We're all marching in the same direction. It was very much a William James moral equivalent of war argument that we should all be with a sense of purpose marching together, rich and poor, um, old and young, towards the same goal of national greatness or, or whatever Benito was talking about that week. And so totalitarian which now has come to mean jackboot stomping on a human face kind of stuff, meant to him holistic, all-inclusive. We're all in it together. Um, no child left behind, right? That, that was what he meant by totalitarian. Now, it gets a little messy because he was also sort of a militaristic dictator, yada, 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 bad guy. But that's what he meant on his own terms. Talk about, you know... Uh, Einflunging into what people were thinking in a specific context. Um, and that desire for sort of soft, that soft totalitarian desire for everybody to be together and everybody to work together, um, which again, let's remember is the core meaning of fascism. Fascist derives its name from the Roman symbol of authority, although it goes back to the Etruscans or whatever, um, which is a bundle of sticks around an axe and the whole point of it was that when you have a bundle of sticks it's very difficult to break any of the sticks because there's strength in numbers symbolically what the fascist represents is strength in numbers and um and this is the cult of unity and we have big chunks of our natural programming that loves unity 
that thinks unity in and of itself is a good thing. And, um, and so when you say things like, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem, you are basically assuming that there are only, first of all, there's a binary um, understanding of what's the problem and what the solution is. Um, but you're also basically deciding that anybody who just disagrees with you or just doesn't, doesn't care is a problem that needs to be solved rather than just somebody who disagrees with you or somebody who doesn't care. You know, I, I very much would like to see vast amounts of, and I'm, I'm totally serious about this. I'm really high on, um, uh, artificial reefs. I've done a lot of reading about them. I think they're really cool. I think they would do wonderful things for the health of the oceans. I think they would do wonderful things for fisheries in poor countries. I think they would make the oceans cooler places. They would help with um, overfishing. Uh, there's all sorts of data that says that like oil derricks in the Gulf of Mexico increase the number of fish um, populations in given areas by almost tenfold. I think it's really cool. It's a great example of trying to improve upon the natural condition. I think you could do all sorts of wonderful things in the Caribbean with this that would help these poor countries. I very, I'm, as you can tell, I'm kind of passionate about it. I don't believe that somebody who hears me starting talking about artificial reefs and slowly inches away from me um, at the bus stop is part of the problem, right? You don't have to agree with me. You don't have to share my passion for this. You don't have to think it's a good idea. Um, it's a free country, right? But there's this idea when it comes to climate change, when it comes to social justice, when it comes to the racial inequalities, when it comes to inequality, when it comes to all hosts of things, is that everyone has to care. And a society that makes it mandatory, perhaps not by law, but by custom and culture, that everybody has to care about what the people at the commanding heights of the culture care about, well, that is a kind of soft totalitarianism. And it's all over the place. Now, where I will disagree a little bit with Rod, and again, I haven't read his books, so I'm being a little unfair, I'm just talking about the concept, where I will disagree with him a little bit, um, and it's a point that Scarborough brought up, is that the amount of censorship out there um, on the right is wildly exaggerated. Every day I see, or almost every day, I see someone point out on Twitter the top 10 most trafficked or most viral stories um, or web or pages on Facebook and routinely the top, you know, nine out of 10 or eight out of 10 are things by Ben Shapiro or Prager university or Dan Bongino or Sean Hannity. Um, the idea that somehow as a matter of course, conservatives are consistently, uh, censored is just, I think a wild exaggeration. But, you know, you can't you can only exaggerate a truth. So I'm not saying there is no censorship of conservative ideas. There certainly is in higher education and the curriculums. Um, there certainly is on the New York Times op ed page. There certainly is in the coverage at most of our leading uh, newspapers and magazines. Um, there certainly is in terms of the themes that make it onto the screen and Hollywood for television and movies. It exists. But at the same time, you know, who out there feels like it is impossible to hear or find the conservative point of view. Fox News is number one um, in cable news in every hour of every day, 
going back, I think about 15 or 20 years now. Uh, it recently topped the broadcast networks in terms of news, I think for watching the debate. Um, you know, you can find this stuff if you want. Um, um, so it's not like, you know, even the supposedly repositories of, of soft totalitarianism and Facebook and Twitter, it's not like they have a stranglehold on conservative ideas. Um, and I think that there is a certain amount of sort of victimology and uh, empathy, antipathy, rabble-rousing going on um, from people who want to make this a bigger issue than it is. I'm not saying it's not an issue, but it's, 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 they're making it a much bigger issue than it is. Um, and, you know, moreover, you know, it, look, if you want to find conservative stuff, but you don't want people to know that you're finding conservative stuff, that you're interested in conservative ideas, one of the things you could use is ExpressVPN. When you use the bathroom, you always close the door behind you, right? You don't want random passersby looking in on you. So why would you let people look in on you when you go online? Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like going to the bathroom and not closing the door. Since they are a sponsor of this episode, I will not do a close analytical parsing of this metaphor, and I'll just let it glide over you. Did you know that your internet service provider, Comcast, Verizon, etc., they know every, every single website you visit? And what's worse is they can sell this information to ad companies and tech giants who will use your data to target you. ExpressVPN puts a stop to this. It creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that your online activity can't be seen by anyone. I actually use ExpressVPN. It's really very easy. You just click on the app, one button, you hit it, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, you're, uh, you're blind. The powers that be are blind to where you're surfing. It, it can be very reassuring, um, you know, particularly when you're doing things like I was just doing my taxes and I really didn't want you know, the sites that I was visiting, um, you know, there would be, I, I don't know how this stuff works, but I always feel more nervous about hacking when I'm actually looking at my credit card bills or at my tax return. The best part about using ExpressVPN is how easy it is to close the bathroom door. Just fire up the app, click one button, and you're protected. ExpressVPN is the world's number one rated VPN by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and countless others. So if you're like me and believe your online activity is your business, Secure yourself by visiting expressvpn.com slash remnant today. You can use this exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash remnant, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash remnant. And you get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash remnant. We thank ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Um, okay, since I brought up the internet stuff and the, the the Facebook and Twitter censorship stuff, I guess I should talk briefly about this New York Post thing. Um, I talked about it a bit on Glop uh, yesterday, but um, you'll notice that we at the Dispatch have not gone whole hog into this story, um, but I'll speak just for myself. I think the whole thing is super sketchy. Um, I think that the New York Post should have done, let me put it this way. 
the arguments against the New York Post running the story as offered by Facebook and Twitter are garbage, as far as I can tell. Although they keep revising their explanation. So maybe like a, you know, chicken pecking away, they finally found a good nugget that makes sense. But, um, you know, if, if your argument is, is that the Post shouldn't publish hacked material um, and that hacked material is somehow illegitimate, well, then you're going to have to take back some Pulitzers for the WikiLeaks stuff for all for Chelsea Manning. Um, you're going to have to say that the New York Times was wrong with its IRS stories. I mean, those were like literally someone committed a, a real crime um, in running with those tax return with that tax return information, uh, which, by the way, Trump basically confirmed the thrust of that story uh, in the town hall last night. But be that as it's may. Um, I think anybody who ever staked out the ground that the story was truly fake news and, and made up is, was making a fool of themselves to begin with. But, um, you know, that argument makes no sense to me. The, that in a, with a free press, if you land on, if you obtain newsworthy stuff that you, in your editorial judgment, think is newsworthy, you have um, every right to run it if, um, and take on the risks of being proven wrong, which could include legal risks. You know, I mean, you're not allowed to publish, you know, uh, slander or any of that kind of stuff. So, you know, you, you take those risks. But I still don't think the Post should have ran the initial story that it ran. Um, it is so obviously sketchy. Uh, Giuliani's story about his involvement is just weird. Anything that Steve Bannon is involved with um, has the smell of sulfur to it, as far as I'm concerned, and I don't trust it. Uh, there are clearly other shoes. I mean, if Centipede wore shoes, there'd still be most of the shoes that the Centipede wore are still going to drop on this thing. And it would not shock me that by the middle of next week, the quote unquote real story here isn't Twitter and Facebook and all that, or the allegations against Hunter Biden. But the the really weird sort of, uh, you know, information campaign um, that led to this very strange computer repair shop owner um, getting this hard drive and doing strange things with it. I mean, the story, anyway, I just, we're, I try really hard um, not to win the race to be wrong first, which is really hard on Twitter sometimes. But I think that this thing um, is just so fishy, fishy and so sketchy um, that the Post, I think, would have been better served to have done better reporting on the material in there rather than just like say, well, you know, the repair guy says this is how he got it, yada, yada, yada. If, if this had been a negative story about Trump, I think they would have put more repertorial resources behind, you know, nailing it down. I still think they'd run it to their credit. Um, I'm a big fan of the New York Post. My column appears there, but I just I think on this one they made a mistake running it, and I think Twitter and Facebook made huge mistakes um, trying to censor it because they couldn't, and the effort just fed right into the hands of uh, the sort of Section 230 or die, or I should say repeal Section 230 or die brigades, um, which I think is a really largely insipid dumb argument and i think it's really weird 
um, that Republicans on the heels of what may be a complete blowout election for the Democrats, taking the Senate, holding the House and winning the presidency are just demanding that the federal government get into the business of regulating social media again at a time when the most viral most traffic stories on social media tend to be by conservatives it's just a very weird you know shoot yourself in the foot and declare victory approach as far as i can tell um but another reason why i'm not sure they should have run the story is that so far at least and again it keeps changing and you know the new allegations i don't trust any of them beyond the fact that they confirm the stuff I already knew, which is that Hunter Biden is a screw up and a drug addict and he's got demons and it's a sad story. And, you know, um, and I'm sure, you know, Joe Biden has, you know, all sorts of complicated and ugly emotions about, you know, the, the, the path that Hunter has taken. And it would not shock me at all if that Biden you know, did favors for his son that were improper, you know, possibly even illegal. But so far, at least, and again, this is one of the reasons why I'm just waiting to see how it plays out. But the last time I checked in on this, the the primary allegation was that Biden might have agreed to shake hands with somebody and have his picture taken doing it. Um, there's no evidence. And remember, Ron Johnson moved hell and earth to find evidence that Joe Biden actually did anything improper in terms of taking actual government action about anything. Um, it looked improper and appearances of improper appearance of, of impropriety are bad and should be criticized. But it just, I have not seen any evidence that this thing is this, you know, silver bullet scandal that, you know, uh, should have Biden prosecuted for something or makes the obvious case that Donald Trump is the only non-corrupt politician in this race. I just think it's, it's, it's largely gross smear guilt by association using, you know, a guy's, you know, uh, drug plagued son as a cudgel to, to dirty up Biden. And I'm not a huge fan of Biden by any stretch of the imagination, and again, I'm open to the idea that he did anything wrong, that he did did wrong things, but I just haven't seen the connect the dots to anything super dramatic about it. And I do think it's kind of funny that if Trump had helped, kept his powder dry and not tried to pressure the Ukrainian government into investigating Biden and getting caught for it um, and triggering the events that led to his impeachment, um, if he had just sort of held this stuff, because clearly they had, you know, all sorts of dirt on Hunter for a long time. Um, if they just, if they, if they didn't try to figure out a way to get, to use Hunter's dirt as a way to dirty up Biden and waited for this October surprise without anybody talking about this stuff, it would have had a much bigger impact. But Trump couldn't help himself. And so now, like the Russia collusion stuff and the Steele dossier stuff and the unmasking stuff, people have already tuned it out. And I just don't think it has much of an impact, except on the people who are already going to vote for Trump and need some new thing to scream about. Um, and I do, you know, since I mentioned the unmasking thing, it really, you know, the enormous number of people should feel compelled to offer serious apologies 
for wasting so much time talking about the unmasking thing as, first of all, proven, as second of all, um, obviously criminal, uh, as, you know, this was, you know, one of these many moments of these sort of, of where people went full Gorka and talked about the chickens are coming home to roost and blah, 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 and there'll be indictments and, you know, how many hours of cable television news were, um, at Fox were taken up by people screaming about the unmasking. And then it turns out that the very investigation appointed by Barr, launched by Barr, trumpeted by Trump as part of the greatest political crime in American history that was going to be exposed, the DOJ looked into it and found nothing and didn't even issue a report on it. And it just sort of disappeared without a ripple. And it seems to me that, you know, if you were part of the hype machine feeding the beast on a daily basis about the unmasking stuff, you should at least acknowledge this and come up with some explanation for why it happened. I mean, you're still allowed to hold on to the idea that the greatest crime in political history was ever, uh, was, was committed, but you at least need to update your argument and explain why, um, Trump's investigation of this yielded nothing. Um, and the, as far as I can tell, none of the people who are all in on that stuff have said, you know, bupkis about it. I mean, I'm, I'm sure some have, and I'm sure there's some QAnon types who say this is, you know, this is just further proof that, um, you know, Gina Haspel drinks baby blood or whatever they're saying this week. Um, but you can think back of all of these various, you know, hysteria inducing things that have popped up about this kind of stuff on the right in the last five, you know, four years that have fizzled. And all the people who promote this stuff do is just tangle on and pick another thing, you know, to raise money off of and say, we need your help for more FOIA this and lawsuits that, um, without dealing with the fact that the last thing they raised money on turned out not to be true. And I should be fair about this. The same goes for all of the jabbering bandersnatches um, on the left who were utterly convinced that Mueller was going to find evidence that Trump was a, you know, a, a Russian agent. Uh, this, is, this is a both sides kind of thing. Um, so there's that. Oh, since I mentioned QAnon, um, there was this... Uh, moment last night, I mean, I, I, I know me, you know, focusing on this stuff bothers people, but when Trump was asked by, um, Savannah Guthrie about QAnon and he said, look, I know nothing about them. I know they're very much, they fight very hard against pedophilia, but I know nothing about them. Um, it just offends me because you have to be really, really stupid or completely in the bunker to take that answer at face value. I mean, just think about it for, the se for a second. You're the president of the United States. You have the ability to, in an hour, get any briefing you want about any pressing issue you want. You also have the ability within five minutes to have someone bring you um, a stack of newspaper articles about any subject that you want. And Trump has been asked time and again about QAnon. He's been told time and again the stuff that QAnon believes. And his answer is, 
I have zero intellectual curiosity about this group that I have boasted likes me a lot. I mean, does anybody actually believe that? And, and so when he says, I don't know anything about them, the only way you can interpret that is he knows quite a bit about them. He just doesn't care and doesn't want to offend them. And, um, and it just, it vexes me the way he gets a free pass for that kind of thing um, on the right. It is utterly irresponsible for him to give QAnon any oxygen whatsoever. His own FBI has called him a potential terror problem. Um, it is, it is, it is sort of textbook unpresidential conduct. And, um, but we've, we've grown sort of numb to it, you know? And so like, similarly, you know, he tweets out a conspiracy theory that Osama bin Laden is alive and that the deep state or somebody has killed, you know, SEAL Team 6 to cover up that fact and all this kind of stuff. And when he's asked about it, he says, oh, that was just a retweet. You know, well, that's crazy. You know, what if, you know, like if Joe Biden retweeted something that was offensive to Donald Trump, do you think Donald Trump would say, well, it was just a retweet? Does anyone, you know, if, if, if I retweeted stuff, anybody else retweeted stuff that was that ridiculous, we would get raked over the coals for it. But we just sort of, you know, take it in stride. So anyway, but this is an old story and, um, 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 there's no point belaboring it now and I've gone on for a while. So, uh, I think I am done. I hope this was at least somewhat worthwhile. I have no friggin' clue. Um, but, um, I do want to tell you about one thing we are, um, uh, you know, when, when this thing, when the pandemic hit, we had to put on the shelf our plans for a whole bunch of event stuff. Like we want to do live dispatch podcasts in various cities. Um, we want to do, um, uh, you know, special events in Washington around the country, um, particularly for our, you know, our paid members. And, um, we had a really robust plan for an event side, uh, to the dispatch and like our peer groups, you know, uh, the NBA and Harvard university, we had to put a lot of our event stuff on hold because of the pandemic. And, um, so we're very excited about getting, getting back to that plan when the time comes, but we always wanted to do a post-election event. And, um, we think it's important enough to do it even virtually. I know there are some people who don't like virtual events and I will be with, among the first to concede that I'm getting exhausted by doing everything over zoom and Zencaster and Google chat and whatnot. Uh, but we're going to try very hard to make this work as a virtual event. We're going to try to have most of the participants in the same room. So at least that has that organic kind of feeling to it. And, um, so we're going to do a big conference called what's next election 2020 and beyond. And we want to get deep into sort of what the next administration, whether it's Trump or Biden is going to look like. We want to get into what is the future of the center, right? What is the future of, of, you know, on foreign policy stuff, but particularly with an emphasis on what are going to be the sort of conservative Republican approaches to things. Uh, we got a whole bunch of 
great guests lined up, which we'll tell you about um, as, as the agenda firms up. And we still have some invitations out to other people. But if you're interested in signing up for it, it's going to be a two-day conference over um, November. I want to make sure I got this right. November 9 and 10. Um, and you can go to whatsnextevent.com to get details. And um, we think a lot of people are going to be paying attention to it. Um, and we think that there's going to be, whether Trump wins or loses, a big conversation, big argument to be had about where conservatism and the Republican Party goes from here. And we think that this is going to be an important contribution to it and a lot of fun. And um, we hope everyone can participate. And so with that, thanks for listening. And I will see you next time. Yeah.